Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome, Michael, to our Reflections episode, looking back on culture and gender roles. We're going to be talking about episode 78 with Tate Walker on using storytelling and art to create social change around Indigenous rights. Episode 79 with Bimla Vishwapremi, a feminist activist on women's rights in India. And finally, episode 81, a Survivor Stories series episode with Aneri Shah on gender roles and how her Indian-American identity impacted her Me Too experience. Thank you so much for having me once again. Another set of episodes that I've appreciated more now after listening to them than initially when I first just saw the title. Why? Why is that? You know, in general, I feel this happens to me with many episodes and not just this, but with any type of media where somebody comes up with something that initially sounds not too appealing, but then when you listen to it, it'll inform you in a way that you never, you know now what you didn't think you would know. So an example is not too long ago, I was listening to an episode on another podcast about like horses and men and it didn't make any sense. But once I listened to it, it just made more sense and it's just become so fascinating. So I think in a lot of ways, I feel that our audience should give a chance to even episodes that you might not initially think that are very interesting at first, because um, you never know what you might learn. So is there anything in any of these titles that you think should be reimagined or reformulated so that the title itself, the marketing of the episode, is reconceived? So you're talking more about, like, do you want a, like a, a clickbait kind of title where they're kind of saying something like, oh, uh, something, something mysterious is going to happen. Find out what it is by clicking. I don't think that an educational podcast such as ours deserves, I think, that kind of treatment. Um, I do believe that our audience is hungry for knowledge, and I, that's why I say just give it a chance. Okay, great. So let's start with the first one, episode 78 with Tate Walker. He's a two-spirit feminist and comes from the Lakota community. What are your thoughts initially about missing and murdered Indigenous women? I know that's something that we touched upon way back in the Brock Turner episode. That was the first time that Indigenous women and violence against the Indigenous female community was brought up. Was there anything about this episode that gave you a different perspective of that information? So initially, when you take a look at a story, even if it's the same story, depending on which perspective you hear it from, you get something completely different. This happens, I think, with movies and literature that you may read. When something is told through a first-person account, it's completely different than something where um, originally somebody tells you, or if it's written in the textbook, it is completely different from the actual person who's living through it. So I, I, I did find something new. From the very beginning of this, this initial, this podcast, I didn't know things that it made me curious and, and, and research more. One of the first things that you mentioned and she mentioned was that she's two-spirit. And I really honestly didn't have an understanding 
100% on what that meant. Um, so I did look it up. I, I didn't understand that it was basically a third gender that's neither female nor male, but it's something that deals with the tribe. So I feel it would have been great to e explore that even more because it's, it's something that I find fascinating. But that's just one of the things, right? And that's, that's a topical thing, not, not in, in the actual having to do with what, what, she ha what she had to say. But just starting from there, I learned something new. It's interesting how this concept is actually relatively new, right? The two-spirit concept. And yet, uh, it, it was only created in 1990, actually, at the Indigenous Lesbian and Gay International Gathering in Winnipeg, as Tate said. But what was interesting is that the idea existed for centuries within the community. And the acceptance of different gender expressions had always been something that the community embraced. And for Tate to say that through colonization, through colonialism, the indigenous community came to adopt this not just rejection, but intolerance of different forms of gender expression was very sad to me to hear. I agree. It, it, it's sad in general also because you would think that a different culture would, I guess, behave differently if there are certain things that exist in that. Like, for example, one of the things that you mentioned was that, that, that the Native Americans are oppressed. And so you would think if you're an oppressed class that you would not be oppressive to other people, right? But unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be the case in any of these three episodes that we're going over, right? And reflecting back on our culture, it's still women being oppressed is something that still happens, no matter which culture. Yeah, I just saw a meme recently during the holidays that, if I could summarize it, basically said, if someone is a bully, then they're probably really unhappy with their life. And so the concept that we all know inherently and instinctively from watching films and TV shows when bullies are depicted, there's usually something in their life that is the cause of that, right? So they're, they're being bullied by usually a very dominant, domineering father figure. And a lot of that bullying has to do with whether or not the bully conforms to gender roles of traditional masculinity. Right. Which one of the things that she mentioned was that the gay and lesbian rights are, are questioned by the leaders or the, the patriarch in that, in, in, in that tribe. So, yeah, unfortunately, it's something that remains consistent throughout many cultures. And yeah, so it could be, it, it, it could be questionable if they're not secure in their masculinity or whatever it is that they believe in. And um, a lot of times also, I think it's, it's a fear of the unknown or fear of something that's different and making it out to be the other. So, and again, it happens in our politics also, where the other is seen as something foreign, dangerous, and something to be really scared about. Yeah, so one of the ways that we perpetuate this othering is, as Tate said, mascots in professional sports and the misuse of Native mascots like the Washington, and I won't say the name, in football, right? The, that concept is so foreign to me that the professional team would have even created the name to begin with, let alone let it persist for so many years. Right. It, it's it's mind-blowing that they don't find, they don't understand why it's offensive. And, and 
despite maybe and they use it as maybe one of the excuses that they use is that uh, it's tradition and it's something that happened before and why change it now why why change it why are these people so sensitive and it's something that they've constantly been oppressing uh, a group of people that just they haven't paid attention to it because it's not something that maybe affects them in any negative way so changing it is also probably scary to them because if that changes then what other traditions are going to be threatened that's how southerners in some ways justified slavery as well right for for a long time slavery was considered a tradition a tradition in terms of the different hierarchies that existed as well as sort of social order Right. And, and any change to that is, yeah, it, it, it's something that changes, affects their core values. And, and um, yeah, th- there's a lot of fear that uh, comes with oppression as well. What about the statistics with regard to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls? This was a movement that began in Canada. And we see a lot of posts in social media and articles in the news about it. But I don't feel like people are really paying the attention to this issue that they, well, it's, I don't think it get, gets as much, much attention in some ways as black women and girls missing. Right. Which in and of itself gets way less attention than, non, than white girls and white women missing. Absolutely. And it's something that, yeah, it happens in this culture. But specifically with this culture, she mentioned that a lot of the violence is perpetrated by people outside of the tribe. And so the group is, is, is oppressed in this other way that's even darker than just, you, you know, like putting a, a mascot. Um, it's something that's very real where people from the outside are affecting the the, the future of the tribe and continuously oppress this group of indigenous people. And it's, it's so sad to me that this was a phenomenon and a crisis that we created because partly because of the laws in which we allow non-native community members to fall through this loophole. Right. So they're not held accountable. And it's, it's just awful because the effect that you see well, the fact that she mentioned was how in the anecdotal in the anecdotal story that she mentioned was where a mother just basically told her daughter that that rape is just part of life. Like this is something. I mean, it's going to happen. So why? Like you just have to be mentally prepared over it so you can get over it. And it's so sad to see that that's happening and that that kind of thought is just pervasive. And I know that that's not the only case of it, both in that tribe and all around the world, um, as we'll see in later episodes. Yeah, and another way that it's been a product of colonialism is the fact that for centuries we've been putting Native American, American Indian children into boarding schools and taking them away from their families. And as I said on the episode, a really great metaphor, visualization for why there's violence in these communities, domestic violence or um, potentially child abuse, is we have taken children away from the ability to be parented. And so they never learned what parenting, healthy parenting 
feels like, and they're never able, they haven't been able to replicate it. Right. So it affects them from generation to generation. She mentioned, uh, she says she doesn't have the exact statistic, but she said maybe 50% or possibly more of, of indigenous children are in foster care or have been through the foster care system. So that's a that, that, that's a scary statistic to think that it's so much higher than the general population uh, because of that. Yeah, and I just want to caution, I don't remember if that statistic was for a particular state or if it was a national statistic, but listeners should go back to the episode and look at the links if that was the case, um, if they're interested in exploring more. Absolutely. Let's, let's turn to the next episode, which is the first one that we've had in two languages. 79 with Bimla Vishwapremi. Uh, she's a feminist activist and working on women's rights in India. And it's the first one that we've had in two languages. She speaks in Hindi, and we had a translator translate everything. So first, I wanted to get your thoughts on what was that experience like? Was it hard to listen to that episode? Was it disconcerting for you to switch back and forth and hold your space while she was speaking to hear her translation? As an English speaker, and an only where I'm only understanding the English part, it wasn't a long episode. I feel that it was perfect that the episode wasn't as long because it may, it may have been difficult to hold my attention for a very long time. There were periods of, you know, where I wasn't understanding what was going on, but it was short enough so that I was able to capture everything that was being said. And so I, I did appreciate the episode as a whole. It's not, uh, it, it wasn't too distracting for me personally. Well, thankfully, um, the reason the episode was so short is because the translator, or I should say interpreter, had some time restrictions. Um, so I guess it worked out. Yeah, what were your thoughts on the main issues that women in India face and the ways in which this feminist activist, Bimla, was addressing them. Did you find that they were new and innovative, or did you find them to be something that sounded similar to other things that you've heard happening in other parts of the world? Like I said, I did appreciate that I'm hearing it directly from her, and in a way, the interpreter really, I feel, I mean, again, I don't know the language, but I feel like he captured a lot of her experience and what she was trying to say. Um, initially, after listening to the episode, I, I, I felt, especially with the, with the last few questions, it, I felt like a, a sense of hopelessness. About Indian women's plight or about all women? Well, specifically Indian women's plight, which extends to all, all, all women. But specifically here, it seems like a lot of the women that she speaks to feel hopelessness. There's a sense, of, a sense of depression, but maybe there is a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel. One of the things that she mentioned was how a lot of these women look up to her and say, I wish I could articulate as well as you can. And, and I think perhaps maybe the lack of education, which she's trying to change, is, is that light um, for a lot of people. But a lot of people aren't exposed to this. And I know that India has a huge population. I, I, I hope that there are others like Bimla who are working to change this. Yeah, so what, I think this episode stood in contrast to the Tate interview because when it comes to the Tate interview, culture was changed. The indigenous culture was changed by colonialism. 
And so it, it started off like on its own, indigenous culture is accepting and promotes equality and acceptance and tolerance of and respect, you know, of all different genders, of men and women collectively. Uh, and then over the centuries has become more and more like its dominant oppressive culture, right? right. It's taken on some of those aspects because of the ways in which intergenerational trauma has affected the people. But here, the culture is in itself very oppressive in, in the episode with Bimla. But somehow when she was young, she was talking about how she always spoke her mind. And that was unusual for a girl, but also it was unusual in the context of her family unit that she was encouraged to do so. Right. And maybe also the fact that there is a caste system and certain groups within themselves are oppressed even further, that, that, that also, I, I feel, could um, inter- be a factor in, in that oppression. So I just appreciated the fact that she was able to speak on a lot of things that I had no idea outside with it, without hearing it from her. So, so before I ask you to delve a little more deeply into that, I, I just want to go back to my comment about Vimla's family unit. I think that the fact that there was this, you know, whether it's nature or nurture or whatever combination, contributed to her being unafraid to speak her mind, to be herself, to have agency and have voice, and that her actions can actually inspire other women in her culture to look at themselves differently and to envision a world differently, that I thought was very hopeful that it spoke to the possibility of change. I think it's something that certain people have. This Maybe it's a leadership quality that makes them different because culture... Nature versus nurture is, is something that we, we, we don't necessarily have control of, of how we're nurtured. It's just what we know and what, what our parents... Our parents, um, we are a product of our nurture. Our parents create an environment in which we have very little control over. We don't choose our parents and we don't choose where we were born with. So sometimes, sometimes that could change. It could be ha- like, for example, I, uh, even though I was born in another country, my parents did decide to come to the United States and change the environment. And I'm sure that I am a different person than I would have been um, if I were to be raised in Colombia. But she, Binla, is someone that's trying to change this culture of oppression from within. She is able to see things that are wrong. And not to say that other people don't, but she does something about it. And she, she, she puts a voice to those women who may remain silent. And at, through, through her actions, hopefully she's able to change uh, at least something. Although, again, like I said, there are, it, it seems like it's more difficult in, in, in India than it is over here in the United States, despite the fact that there's a lot of things that um, are wrong with our culture as well. Well, I think what makes Bimla's approach different from how we deal with domestic violence here in the U.S. and across some Western countries is that there is a holistic approach. There's an understanding. And and from what I understand, the reason there's a holistic approach is if you're a victim 
of domestic violence or sexual assault in any way, you're so stigmatized that you don't have access to power and resources. And so the approach has to be holistic in that communities who come together or NGOs that come together are funding not just providing housing, but education and helping survivors build businesses through microfinancing and connecting that with basically the economic empowerment of women so that they can have choices and agency. And that's not something that we do in the U.S. We are very siloed in our approach. We We deal with one issue at a time, you know, giving an order of protection, dealing with the criminal justice system, providing shelters if there's housing instability. But we're, we're not addressing how do we provide this consciousness raising that BIMLA offers in addition to then this pathway towards freedom, right? Towards liberation, towards choice. Right, because you're, you're basically looking at the root cause of what is causing all of these, these um, all of this harm, right? So, so taking that, that whole approach is beneficial, I think. And in some ways, wouldn't you say that the approach that we have in the United States can be a crutch? The fact that we can provide these siloed services, we can give you housing and a shelter. We can give you minimal legal support to get an order of protection, but then the rest is left to you, right? So in a way, these individual services, which are not complete, like you can get an order of protection, but then is there going to be an advocate that's always available to reach out to or a therapist to, you know, from the, the same organization that understands your full story that you can reach out to whenever there's a court date, right? If there's a court hearing and then what happens after the court hearing and there needs to be, you know, some action taken or it's not resolved to your benefit, is there a community of people and resources that can help you with that. No, you're left alone again. And so I, in some ways, like I don't feel at all served by the New York City domestic violence community. I think that the outcomes that they're funded by are not aligned with helping women become free from abusive relationships. For example, in order to qualify for legal services, you have to be of a certain demographic in some ways. If your case is too quote-unquote complicated or too lengthy, it's something that they will reject you for because funders pay and expect these agencies to serve a certain minimal number of clients. And it's, it's not whether the client is gonna get a positive outcome, they're funded based on quantity. And if you're just gonna serve based on quantity and there's no correlation with whether it actually helps to uplift this woman and family, then that's completely, I think, screwed up. I agree that uh, in the United States, we have a long way to go to fix um, all the things wrong in our justice system. But I think a lot of it is because of capitalism and and making sure that we find the most efficient way to address the these issues. I don't know an, enough about India to, to say, well, maybe the holistic approach is better. And I agree, being supported by an entire community is so much more helpful. Sometimes if you don't get those 
that, that help, like um, small financial help. It, it's better to have that supportive community, right? Uh, but saying that, I would also say that, again, I, I can't speak to India, but I know I have family in Colombia. Um, they look at the United States and they say, well, I would prefer that over what we have here because they're legally, they're not protected in many ways. So if something happens, if there's a domestic violence issue, it's not going to be hurt. If you tell the police officer, it, it, they may laugh at you. They may, they may not address it at all. While over here, it's taken a little bit more seriously. So again, I, I, I can't say what, what, how India is, but I know in other countries, third world countries, the situation is a little bit different. Yeah, and I'm glad you used the, word, the phrase little more seriously because it's incrementally better here and that goes back to the culture because ultimately when you're relying on law enforcement, police culture is such that they're defined and rewarded um, and their status is inextricably linked to the use of violence and force and intimidation to maintain control over a group of people in society. And it's not about law and order. It's about maintaining control and not through fear and not, not really trying to build a peaceful society, right? And so the fact that the culture within law enforcement is so misogynistic and sexist and that police officers are the profession with the highest rates of domestic violence, in some cases reported to be 40% of, the, of that profession has engaged in some sort of alleged domestic violence in their relationships, that, of course, is going to set us up for not being able to trust the criminal justice system or any part of the community even to provide accountability. Right. And we've spoken about the, um, the law enforcement here in, uh, in episodes before. Yes, that, that's also another problem. Like, again, I agree. We do have a lot of issues with the justice system, both in law enforcement and the way courts work and the way uh, that we view domestic violence and women's issues I, 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 and, and, and other issues like in general. I, and I agree. I don't know enough to say that one is better than the other if, if, um, if, if in many ways uh, I hear that in other countries the issue isn't addressed at all. But yes, you're right. They, it's really great to have that support system. And, but not everybody has that support system. Uh, I'm sure that, that uh, some classes in, in India, some castes may approach it differently. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, I think, you know, this goes back to the concept of sexism and misogyny in culture and the differing degrees to which we have awareness of our own internalized oppression, right? And so if you have a country like India that is so clearly hierarchical and caste and class and gender and religion and sexual orientation and expression all come into play at once and there's all different levels of hierarchy that define your status in that culture, it makes it easier in some ways, I think, to identify oppression. And here, where there's the illusion of freedom and democracy, it makes it harder. You've been to India recently. Um, just to be clear, you said that it's easier to identify oppression there because you don't have the illusion of 
justice that you have over here. Um, can you give me an example, just, just, I, just out of curiosity? Well, in the past week or two weeks, the government headed by Narendra Modi, the prime minister of India, basically introduced a citizenship amendment bill which has led to widespread protests and violence and death. And so the bill basically creates a national registry of citizens, and you have to prove, there are certain requirements for proving that you're a citizen. And so people who are um, Muslim, who have been there for generations, who consider themselves Indian, may or may not have that paperwork because they've, migrated or immigrated from other parts of the region um, because of the unrest in the region. And so this bill explicitly excludes Muslims from being able to be considered citizens. And it w- so it's effectively, as some activists have described it, a form of genocide, potentially, based on religion. And so because you're making religion the basis for Indian citizenship, there are hundreds of millions of people who would be at risk. And the way in which they would be at risk is still unclear, but I think we have some clues based on how the Indian uh, law enforcement have responded to student protests in opposition to this proposed bill um, through the violence uh, that they've used as a way to to, uh, quell the the voices of dissent. And, you know, I think it's really scary. It's scary that not enough people in the U.S. know about this bill. I think, and many people think, the prelude to a potential genocide. And, and certainly, the, at a minimum, the um, suppression, repression, or uh, erasure of human rights and dignity for a whole group of people based on their religion. And so there are some celebrities in the U.S. who have come out in support of the student protesters, but they've been careful not to support the cause of their protest. So they they support their right to protest, but not the reason why they're protesting, which is they haven't been able to speak out and that take that extra step to say, this is the reason why they're protesting. That this is discrimination. It's discriminatory. It's Hindu fascism. And, and I think that's very troubling. Right. I think in other countries, uh, it seems to be working the same uh, right now, uh, the situation with China. But I think in many ways, even the United States, some, some things like the migrate, migrant situation is, is pretty obvious. And even in the impeachment trial where things are obvious, but it's, it, it, these injustices are, are still out there. I, I do think it's, it, it, it's a worldwide thing. I think that, that one of the things, that's one of the things that I hope that we can do with this podcast is to help people who are listening connect the dots between all of these events in China, in Hong Kong, in Burma, in India, in the U.S., that the leaders that we have who are engaging in tactics, abuser tactics that I've described, um, course of controlling tactics, these are the same tactics that are being used to limit 
freedom in the individual family unit, right? It's coercive control in the family. Um, and very often we can recognize it on the higher level, on a macro level, like these, these, these government tactics, surveillance, you know, it's awful. And why are there cameras everywhere? Um, there's, you know, the erasure and erosion of privacy when we go out into public spaces. And yet when we go home, if our partner wants to look at our phone or wants to know where we are and demands that they get a play-by-play of our daily activities, we somehow justify that and, and excuse it and we can't make the connection that it's not a healthy or safe um, or free environment for us to be in. Absolutely, it's, it's, it's all connected. Kind of like um, when Aneri was uh, explaining how in her culture, men get served first, especially when it comes to large gatherings. But then you pointed out how it's so similar over here in the United States where women are usually in the kitchen while the men are watching football. So in, in a lot of ways, things that are happening, I agree, in, 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 in the family, uh, in the macro level and the micro level are very similar. Well, it's all about patriarchy, right? Every culture, most every culture in the world right now that has... Um, prominence is patriarchal in nature. And so whether you're talking about Indian American families, where they've brought their culture from a different continent to the US, uh, or you're talking about white American culture, like you were saying, the example I gave about NFL football, watching the Super Bowl, it's understood. I mean, I don't particularly like football or watch it, but it's understood that there's this bifurcation. And, and so it's not just Indian American culture, it's patriarchal culture. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a culture and it, it's, it's worldwide. Uh, so, so yeah, and I, I am able to see that. And then sort of taking that one step further, there's this expectation that you're going to participate in that culture depending on your gender. So as a man, if you don't watch football or team sports in the U.S., you're somehow considered not in. Right, not in. Maybe in some cases less manly, maybe. So it really, it, it really depends on, on, on what it is. Yeah, I, I don't watch football either. But it, it, it's, a, it's a culture that's really, really prominent over here in the United States. It's, it's something that is become, it's just become part of our culture. I think with Aneri's observations about that story, uh, it, had you heard about the TV show that she talked about? I haven't, no. Okay, so, so when she talked about the Netflix show Dating Around, which I hadn't seen, and she gave the example of the Indian woman on the show and how, as a divorcee, right, right. she was more confident and self-assured and she didn't let her environment dictate what she thought of herself. Which was something that I, I did appreciate to, to have an understanding where you're in a relationship. If you're in a relationship or not a relationship, you're your own person. And that's something that I guess was highlighted through, through, through that. Um, and in her relationship with her partner, how she wasn't dependent on the other person's personality or what she should do in order to conform to his likes and dislikes and vice versa, right? Like he has the ability. There's no questioning on one of the other, or like you mentioned before, there's no monitoring or, or, or having any sense of you controlling another person 
in a relationship, which I think is something that in many relationships it's expected. And it's because we grew up with these expectations. We see it in our environment growing up with our parents and we, we perpetuate that unconsciously. It's not something that we think about. So in many cases, I see that in many relationships where it's just part of it. It's just, it's just one of the ways that they operate, which I, th- I think it's, it's rare. I haven't really seen um, too many couples where they operate independently of each other and they each have the freedom to uh, be who they are. So in other words, you haven't seen a lot of healthy relationships? Yes, actually, that, that makes sense. I, I haven't, I wouldn't say I haven't even been in, in healthy relationships myself. Well, speaking of back to culture again, in shaping how we respond to incidents of violations, right? So with Aneri, she was drugged. Um, she was roofied. And there was a friend that she was with. And when they both came to the next morning and they both realized it, they were silent about it for years. And even though her friend had been a victim herself in the past. In college, yeah, she mentioned. So that's what rape culture is, right? Where victims are made to feel ashamed or silenced and not being able to talk about something and they participate in their own silencing potentially. And a lot of it... So it, it, it comes from fear, you know. Um, one of the things that Anari mentioned is how, at the time, she was vocal. Also, initially, she wasn't vocal about it. But um, when she did open up about it, she had certain expectations of how others should react. And she wanted certain things that people didn't, because of the fear. I think fear is such a, in, such a factor that affects um, domestic violence in a negative way. Uh, And it's really unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, I think people, as she was saying, her her family members didn't didn't want to create an opportunity for dialogue. And when that happens, actually, it it hinders the survivor from being able to heal because talking about it and processing it and being able to share that story and make it a separate event from. The confusion that you have, that's just, if, you're, if it's only in your brain, this disconnect between what should have happened and what happened to you, what should be and what was, it, it needs to be vocalized. And that's why talk therapy in some ways or just sharing is so important because it helps you to distinguish between this is reality, this is my reality, and it happened. It, and, and it kicks in a form of, it kicks in something in your brain that helps to process the trauma and help you actually heal from it. And it seems like these disconnects happen in different parts of of the situation, right? So she mentioned that a lot of times maybe some of her friends and family uh, blamed her or or they, they wanted to make her to be the victim. And even in the way that we talk about rape, it's like that, like you got raped instead of saying that person raped you. Like you're, 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 Passive instead of active. It's passive instead of active. And, and again, like, she wanted them to be angry at the perpetrator, but she didn't get that. Um, even from the very beginning where people, from the way that people talk about rape, where, like, they tell her, or the women are in general told, you know, so you have to stay safe, be careful, because a stranger might get you. But it's something that happened with somebody that she knew. It was an acquaintance that she knew for years. And... It's, it, 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 it's such a shock 
where society builds this this whole this whole way of thinking that's so completely different from reality. Yeah, and putting the burden on the victim to protect herself rather than putting the burden on the perpetrator to not commit these crimes. Right. And and commit these acts. Right, and it's 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 shocking to 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 even know that it's so many that this happens so often to many women and that it happens with people that they know. So one of the things that she mentioned was that uh, there was a male friend of hers who said, well, if that happened to me, I wouldn't trust any man. Like, like, because how could you be friends with any man if they could potentially be a perpetrator, somebody that you see that's nice, that could possibly, you know, just, just be a friend. And, and anybody could be a perpetrator. And it's, it's, it's awful that we have this culture that uh, in many ways protects the perpetrator instead of, instead of putting the blame on them. And we're blaming the victim instead. Yeah, and I recently just uh, finished the Netflix series, um, which I think originally aired on Bravo TV, called Dirty John. Mm-hmm. So as you know, I'm working with a group of people to try to criminalize coercive control in New York State. And one of the people in the group is Laura Richards, who was a consulting producer for Dirty John, the podcast, which is a real-life true story uh, of a woman who was coercively controlled. And I, I didn't listen to the podcast, but I saw the TV show. And what was interesting is, you know, now, I mean, I'm at a different place of consciousness in terms of picking up signals, right? So I, I have like a very refined, I think, radar for identifying abuse, abuse of power, and potential acts that might indicate um, a sense of dominance and desire to maintain dominance and power and control exerted over others. And so there was, it was an eight-part episode, and in the first episode, and, and I'm just speaking about the episode, even though this is real life, because the TV show was actually dramatized and fictionalized parts of it. So regardless of whether it was true or not in real life, the woman, the main character, Deborah, she had a blind date with a man, John, Dirty John, mm-hmm. who eventually became her husband. And he had just been released from prison, actually, a few days earlier, and, and he was on the prowl. Okay. Uh, and she didn't know this. He came, she gave him her address to pick her up on the first date, and he came. Uh, she lived with her daughter. Her daughter was there and, and later on made some comments about the casualness of his dress and how it was disrespectful because he came in shorts and a T-shirt, I believe, and this is in um, Southern California. Mm. And she was dressed nicely for a first date. And so... Her daughter thought that 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 quote unquote disrespect was in misalignment in how you want to present yourself. Absolutely, um, is a form of entitlement. I don't think she used those words necessarily, but that's how I interpret it. So that was like first sign, right? And the second sign was at the end of the date, he dropped her off at her apartment, and she invited him in. And they started a conversation. Uh, in the living room, and then she excused herself to go to the bathroom to freshen herself up. Her bathroom was in her bedroom. When she turned around, she saw that he had invited himself into her bedroom and actually plopped himself on her bed, you know, like kind of when you make snow angels. Right. And he 
and then she turned startled and he was commenting on how comfortable the bed was. Mm. And she asked him very politely if he could go back to the living room and indicated that, you know, she hadn't planned on having taking their conversation um, outside of that space. Right. And he didn't move. He didn't budge. And and so at that point, they were in some ways, I wouldn't say she's they were negotiating. She was making a request that he repeated request and he kept ignoring them. And then she eventually very quickly said, I think we need to end this evening. Right. And he very slowly turned to the side of his, um, he was on his back and he turned to his side and didn't move for a few seconds, but kind of made, you know, gestured in his body language. And I think even like a sigh, like you're such a, you know, Debbie Downer kind of, he didn't say that, but that was the implication. Right. And then he kind of stormed out and left. And so to me, that was big, big, big sign number two of male entitlement, male aggrieved entitlement. Right. Like he didn't respect her request and he felt entitled to violate boundaries, not ask for consent. And not only, I mean, there's also that expectation that like, all right, then if she does this, then um, she's, she's expected, like as a woman, she's, she, she, if she invites a man over, like they, maybe there's this expectation, like you said, it's an entitlement, right? Maybe society also contributes to that, right? That's that, that, that sense of entitlement. So hopefully people will become more aware of these inconsistencies in the way we interact with each other. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that clear is a, a clear violation of what it is that, she, that, that her desires are. But that's something that you talked with Inari about during the episode, how there are certain uh, things that like, oh, well, if a man pays for the meal, then a woman is supposed to be accepting or, or, or offer something else, you know, that is a transactional and it's, so it's a transactional relationship, which is not what it should be. Yeah, because I think, you know, in a healthy relationship, both parties are coming together to create a bond, right? You're building a bond and that requires really intimacy. It's about emotional intimacy and building trust. And so if you make it transactional, then it's no longer about building trust because Trust is inherent in a transaction, assuming that both sides, you know, understand what that transaction is, right? There's no need for trust building, in other words. And if you take the transaction, the transactional aspect out of the relationship, there's no trust, right? You start with no trust and you're building trust. And so it takes work on each side to give to that relationship. Relationship, yeah. Yeah, there, there, and it has to be on both sides where you're, both both parties are in agreement that this is what's going on and this is what's happening, um, and hopefully that'll flourish into something much greater in the future. Yeah, and I just want to add also another anecdote from the Dirty John TV show that I thought was very telling in terms of the contribution of culture to people making decisions to act or not act in a certain way when they're in an unhealthy relationship is family. Uh, And so Deborah's mother, in this case, I think very clearly was depicted as someone who was charmed by John, got value herself in getting male attention, attention from him in particular. Mm. And 
I think the most telling example was Deborah had a sister who was murdered by her husband. And he, yeah. by, uh, de- by the sister's yeah. husband? And so the sister's husband killed his, her sister through a gunshot, um, multiple gunshot wounds. And the mother actually went to prison, as it was depicted in the show, to speak with her son-in-law. And voluntarily, even before he offered any kind of remorse, she just gave him her forgiveness. And she even went to the lengths of going to his defense attorney and offering herself as a character witness in his trial and in his sentencing so that he could get leniency. And while she was on the stand, she said, I hate what he did. I hate his actions. But I know that there's love in his heart and I forgive him. And so I thought that was like a huge myth that you can't, you can separate someone's actions from their character, so to speak, if those actions are small. But if they're a a part of a pattern of actions, then it is their character. Right. That's who they are. You don't just, nobody just jumps in and murders somebody. There's a whole bunch of things that happened before that. That's the end result of a whole pattern of domestic abuse and, and just awful years of years of suffering upon the victim. Of coercive so, control. And coercive control, yes. Right. So, the, so, yeah, people don't look at it holistically in that way, which I think is very important for us as a society to, to see why the things happen and not just the actions, not just the end result. Yeah, and so that was, I thought, a great example of how family pressure, implicit or explicit, to have status, to have approval, to have to continue to receive love, maybe even in some cases, right? You stay in a relationship because your family or your extended community around you thinks that that relationship is good or doesn't see the side of the abuser and gets value out of their own relationship with him. Another thing that was mentioned in Inari's episode was the concept of shame, how shame also affects the, the, the family's point of view on, on how you should say. So like if you're, if you're a single and, uh, or divorced mother who's of a certain age, well, there's certain shame attached to that and how could you do that? And it's internalized with a lot of women where they feel like, oh, I'm a certain age uh, and, and people are going to think little of me, like I should be a mother or I should have kids or I should be wed. Yeah, and that came up in our conversation, the Survivor Story series episode with Rosara Torres Thomas, who was a single mom of several kids when she met her abuser, the police officer. Um, And he made her feel like, you're so lucky to have me because you're so lucky that anyone would want you because these children are a burden. Right. Yeah, I remember that episode. I think there's a little bit of that in all survivor stories where there's there's that shame there's there's this expectation that things should be a certain way and a lot of people do internalize that so hopefully a lot of victims are looking past that and 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 recognizing well, it Well, I think we have so much to do each of us individually in making sure that the messages that we give to ourselves and to our friends and to our children are ones that don't attach their value to their relationship status or the success of their relationship. 
Absolutely. Because a lot of times, it again, like we talked about earlier, their identity even becomes them being in a relationship where they are not who they are unless they were with that person and they identify with that person and, and, and they're unable to separate themselves as an individual, which in a healthy relationship you should. As we conclude 2019 and look back on all of the episodes that we've aired this year, I wanted to ask you if there were any particular episodes or themes, series of episodes that we discussed in our reflections that you felt were particularly insightful and moving and inspiring and memorable. Absolutely. There are a couple of themes, many, many episodes that I can think of. I'd like to highlight, and for those of you who are new to this podcast, if you, uh, these are my recommendations, I would say. Um, there's there's uh, the, the international, the, when we talked about international feminism, feminism, there were a couple of episodes that I did appreciate for a couple of reasons. One of them is because I actually did get to meet the person, but I found them very fascinating for other reasons. So, for example, uh, Seth Sheldon talked about um, how, how it's connected to um, the worldwide stance on weapons, right? And how uh, nuclear patriarchy basically uh, dictates how we uh, should use our nuclear weapons over here in the United States and worldwide, and how it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just this, this, this battle um, that, again, it could potentially end all life as we know it, all human life as we know it in, um, in, in, in the world. So you're saying basically that Seth, Seth's conversation on nuclear disarmament is very closely tied to the ways in which patriarchy defines men and the ways in which we have status, men have status, gain status and power um, is partly through the symbol of nuclear weapons. And so if you translate that to a country level, countries maintain their dominance and power and influence through their ability to threaten basically violence and death. Absolutely. It's, it's amazing how everything is connected like this, this topic of feminism or, and basically this podcast just connects everything. And, and so that is, is a clear way where it's, it, it affects the entire world. Um, I also met Damien Mander. I, I was, him and a few other, um, uh, other guests don't necessarily identify themselves as feminist, but they use feminist values in order to make the world better. And they use, they use these, the, this, this idea of community and um, cooperation in order to help others. The Akashinga? Akashinga. Uh, Akashinga, right. The Akashinga is just a prime example of that. So um, if you're ever curious, that's a great episode to, to listen to. So some of my favorite themes were the criminal justice system, the fact that we had Rachel Louise Snyder, which, by the way, was the episode that was most downloaded for the whole of 2019. Uh, wow. She's the author of the book, No Visible Bruises. Right. And it was nominated uh, for a top 10 book award. Uh, I can't remember which award, but <laughs> sorry, Rachel. But I think it was a really great overview of the ways in which we need to re- re-envision domestic violence in our country. And it 
explored those policy changes in the form of delving deeply into the real life stories of the survivor who was killed, or and multiple survivors. Right. Speaking of criminal justice, um, another episode that stood out was the one with Richie Rosado, where he was basically you 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 felt a young person being passionate about feminism, and it's amazing how he had the idea of teaching feminism to those youth that are incarcerated or people that are incarcerated in general. I think it's I think it's a great tool. For, peop- for educators in general to just expose people in communities they may not have been exposed to that to these concepts and especially cultures that are very uh, patriarchal. Did you know that in the beginning, the battered women's movement, the goal of battered women's movement was really feminist consciousness raising. It wasn't about providing services. Those were considered secondary. So providing housing, shelter, and all of that safety actually came after the feminist consciousness raising because it was important to actually have the tools to give to survivors to recognize the ways in which they, their freedoms were being deliberately inhibited and to give them that consciousness so that it could root, be the root and foundation for all the other things and choices that they made. I see. So again, taking the holistic approach to, to, to identify what the root cause is, especially for women who may be so in the situation that they can't see what behaviors constitute coercive control or, or abuse, because it becomes invisible to many of them. Yeah. So like the whole Dirty John example, Deborah Newell, the um, victim in that case, she, by the way, there was never any physical violence towards her, but it was lots of examples of course control, like the ones that I gave you, but she was so informed by her own experiences. I'm sure she didn't say this explicitly, but it was, um, she had a history of having been married four times and divorced four times. And so I'm sure that shame came into it, the sense of, I need to make this work. And, you know, my value comes out of this partly is derived out of the sense, uh, out of the success of this relationship and their reluctance to leave and to keep giving this perpetrator basically so many chances again and again and again, we're all informed and shaped by the culture around us. And so the fact that there was never any violence until towards the end when the, when the main character, John, attempted to kill Deborah's daughter and then she, in self-defense, was able to kill him, mm-hmm. you know, and fend him off. That just goes to show that un- unless we provide disincentives for people to engage in these behaviors, a lot of which is not considered criminal in our society, these are going to continue to basically infect our society. Right, because that's where it starts. Coercive control is where, where directly leads in many cases to further violence and if it's not criminalized, it's something that should be. Well, as we end 2019, what are some of your hopes for 2020 that you'd like to share? Primarily, I hope the presidential race goes better than it did in 2016. Um, that's, I feel like 2016 was such a traumatic experience for many of us. And um, I, I, I hope that people go out there to vote. So I encourage you, if you're listening, please encourage others to vote. It, it, it's important for our voice to be heard so 
we can address some of these issues, hopefully, that are affecting all of us. For me, I am looking forward to releasing a series of episodes, upcoming ones on, on beauty and fashion and lifestyle, the lifestyle industry, a deeper exploration into healing and deep dive into one book in particular that we've discussed in the past that I find very problematic. We're going to have a roundtable discussion with some survivors and advocates about the book, which I won't name, but those are some of the things that I'm looking forward to because I think that exploring episodes around a certain theme gives listeners the opportunity to think from different perspectives about how how that particular topic has shaped or informed their views about that topic and how it's shaped and informed their own behavior and self-perception. And so hopefully these are some of the topics that will really influence listeners to gain some more insight into their own relationships and take action. Yeah, so, wow, so fashion and a different type of format that you're going for 2020 is going to be exciting. Well, I wish you the best, Michael, and until next year. That's right. Have, have a great new year, and let's hope that this upcoming one, 2020, which is very auspicious, the, the, the number being repeated, is going to bring us a lot of positive change and opportunity. I really do hope so. Happy New Year, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.